Good evening, I'm Matthew Frost and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored Live, our third live episode that we're bringing to you. So throughout this episode, uh, we're going to be inviting you to post any questions you have in the comments below and we'll have a chance to answer those afterwards. If this is your very first time watching one of our live podcasts and have yet to watch the previous two, if you scroll a little bit down the music editorial Facebook page, you'll find those. And also, we've released some audio-only podcasts which are available on Acast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify if you search for Fully Scored. Now, without further ado, it gives me the great pleasure to welcome our guest for this evening onto this podcast. And our guest this evening really needs no introduction. He's an absolute legend of the trumpet world and, and a fantastic gentleman. I'm going to enjoy listening to, and talking to him in the next few minutes. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Philip Smith to the podcast. How are you, Matthew? Very well, thank you. How are you? Very good, thanks. Thanks for having me. No problem. Absolutely. Our pleasure. So let's delve back into history a bit with my first question. Could you tell us where you were born and where you grew up? I was born in London, in the Halsden section of London. Uh, my dad at the time was solo cornet in the blues, the horse guards blues. And so he was uh, doing a service that time. So we lived in a little, a little house that I've since seen. And uh, it's been kind of interesting to see that and relive that. Uh, when he left uh, the blues, uh, the family home was in Clacton-on-Sea. My grandparents ran a guest house there called Sydenham House on Ellis Road in Clacton-on-Sea. And so that's, uh, we, we lived in Clacton-on-Sea. My dad worked as a machinist there. He was a bandmaster of the Clacton band. And uh, I lived there until I was four, uh, at which point we then emigrated across to Toronto. Fantastic. And just to pick your brains a little bit more, you've mentioned to uh, alluded to us there, but what are you, some of your first memories of the Salvation Army? Um, you know, that's always a hard question because I'm not always sure what, you know, do, what do I remember really or what do I remember from photographs and things like that? Um, I don't, you have to know me enough to know that I don't remember much. Um, and so my family are probably laughing even at your question because they're going to think that you're not even going to get an answer out of him because he can't remember what happened two days ago. But um, I, I think the things that I first remember, I mean, I, I, I remember the, the band uh, and the army do, uh, at Clacton doing beach meetings and that. So I have visuals of that. Um, I have visuals of some of the town parades. I actually have nightmares about some of those. Um, and uh, and it, it was actually funny when we went back recently, I saw something in the sky which reminded me, I guess it was just a typical seaside sky. And I re it reminded me of dreams that I had as a kid. But my first real memories of the army are probably after we had uh, probably moved to uh, uh, New York. We lived in Toronto for about three years and then in 59 moved down to New York and so my first memories there would have been probably as a young boy uh, a junior soldier at uh, the Jamaica Citadel Corps and then moving out to suburbia we went to the newly formed at that time Hempstead Citadel Corps and so sitting in the meetings uh, being a part of a huge 
group of uh, uh, band kids and singing company kids and uh, all wearing our red jackets at Hempstead. Uh, we were all cut up. So I can remember sitting in the meetings and then, uh, cause you never like to sit with your parents. And my dad had a wicked snap and he would, if we were cutting up, he'd hear that snap and we all knew to straighten up cause uh, dad was getting ticked. So uh, those are kind of the first memories that I have remembering that. Fantastic. Great to hear those memories. A very impressive click there. This must be the one of the loudest I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's generic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, looking into your musical upbringing a bit, um, who or what was your biggest inspiration to take up learning the cornet or the trumpet? Well, the biggest inspiration right from the get-go would obviously be my dad. I mean, just hearing my dad play, um, watching him as a player, watching him as a bandmaster, having lessons with him. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't all lovey-dovey. It wasn't all great. Lessons with dad often ended in tears. Uh, he probably doesn't think so, but I remember them being kind of uh, aggressive and, and things like that. But um, certainly he was my biggest inspiration. I can remember going to the temple uh, on 14th Street in New York City and hearing a staff band concert and hearing dad play songs in the heart or or uh, glorious fountain or happy day and or, or tone solos and just... Uh, you know, so just wanting to be like that, being attracted to brass band, being attracted and, and then playing the cornet. And then, and then what choice did you have? He wasn't going to put you on tuba. You were going to start on cornet, you know, so that's where it went. Great. And you mentioned that your lessons often ended in tears. Was that you or your father? Uh, <laughs> no, that was me. <laughs> it, it, it always seemed to have uh, family feuds. I can remember him getting on my case and uh, sort of the way I get on my kids' cases now at school and just being relentless and uh, demanding more and more and more. And I would be getting frustrated and I can hear my mom yelling down uh, the stairs, leave him alone, Derek. And dad would have something to say and I'd be snuffling. So it's just the way it was. Well, I suppose no one wants to aim for average. You always want to aim for perfection, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, quite a tricky question here, perhaps. Um, do you think if you didn't have faith, you'd be a different player to that that you are today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, faith. Uh, as a Christian, your faith in Christ, your relationship with Christ, your relationship with the Holy Spirit and God, the Father, the, the Trinity there, that affects who you are, that, 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 that works on the inside. And so, that affects everything about you. It affects how you live your life. It affects what you think, what you feel, what you what you do. Obviously, as a musician, that's it, a very internal. Your uh, your your giving of your heart as a musician, and so if your heart, if with with a relationship with Christ, that's that yes, it absolutely informs what who you are. Great stuff. Now moving on through the chronology of your life a little bit. Uh, you went on to study the trumpet at the Juilliard School, um, one of the top institutions for music performance in the world. And during this time, you were also part of the cornet section of the New York Staff Band. Did you ever find any conflicts in switching between playing cornet and studying orchestral trumpet playing? No, I didn't. I, I can honestly say that. Um... I love brass banding. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a reason why so many 
uh, top brass players grew up in a brass band world and environment. They, what that does for your technique, your endurance, your musicianship, your singing nature. Um, there's so much to that. That's, that's there. Um, obviously, I grew up playing, and, and I've, I've often referred to it this way, I grew up playing cornet, which I would, I would, for the sake of discussion, say is a feminine instrument. You play it in a feminine way. And, uh, and, and when I went to Juilliard and first started having lessons with a trumpet teacher other than my dad, um, this gentleman, uh, Ed Troidel was his name. He also was the teacher of Carol Dorn Reinhardt, who some folks may remember. But um, he never told me not to play that way. He simply expanded my horizons to start to think in a more masculine trumpet way. And in fact, when I listen to the, my, my heroes of trumpet playing, I hear both of those things. I, if I think about Herseth, I think about the, the, the lyricism and the femininity that he can play um, Song of the Nightingale, the pretty little solo in Song of the Nightingale, or in um, uh, Lieutenant Kiji, the, the little cornet solos. He can sound like a sweet feminine little cornet player, but then you hear him a little later in Shostakovich, you know, it can be even in a Mala symphony, some pretty little cornet solos. And then a little later in the next movement, he's roaring and ripping through something like a hot knife through butter. And so it was, it was never not, don't play like that. It was add to this, widen the scope, wider palette. So I can honestly say I never, I never felt not, you know, these things are separate. You do that there, you do this here. No. And I didn't, I didn't approach that way, even as a player myself, I incorporated both things. Uh, fascinating insight there. So my next question, uh, you, after a short spell with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, you moved to the New York Philharmonic as co-principal trumpet in 1978. And then 10 years later, came the principal trumpet player. How did you feel occupying one of the most prestigious trumpet positions in the world? Scared. <laughs> I mean, really, it, it's, uh, it, you know, only, only three and a half years I'd gone from Juilliard um, into the Chicago Symphony. I can remember my first concerts in the Chicago Symphony thinking, well, this is cool. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm with the big boys. I can, I can do this. And being totally awed by how they played and realized my inadequacies. And now three and a half years later, on my second audition, I win the principal trumpet in the New York Philharmonic. I'm going, what am I doing here? You know, this isn't, this isn't the beast. It's not supposed to be the way this happens. And I realized my inadequacies. I didn't know all the repertoire. I didn't know all of that. Um, but I, I love to play my horn and I just tried to play the best I could. And, and, but you realize there how perhaps unprepared you are and you got a lot of learning to do. So there was never a sense of uh, cockiness, like, wow, I'm the first trumpet of the New York Philharmonic. It was more like, whoa, I better protect myself here. I better hide a little bit and, and learn quickly as I go here because there's a lot to do. So you've mentioned a few uh, players and people that have influenced you on your journey. But if you had to say uh, either one or two particular trumpet players that you've always looked up to and admired, who would they be? Well, obviously my dad, um, as he's 
he's been my mentor, my, my biggest supporter from the moment I was born until today. Um, but then if I look outside of that, I, I, I would have to honestly say that my biggest inspiration probably orchestrally comes from Bud Herseth. Uh, even as a student, um, when you're going up in the listening library and putting on the recordings, I was always attracted to Chicago. I always, there was something about the way he played the trumpet, something about the sound of that brass section that attracted me. Even though I was studying, I studied three years with Ed Troidel, and then I studied for a year and a half with Varchiano, principal trumpet of the Philharmonic. I was always attracted to what Herseth did. I was also attracted to, uh, I made a lot of recordings at home because my dad liked the Philly Orchestra of uh, Gil Johnson and his playing. So he was another, another one. Then, when, then I would have to say there would be the soloist ones that would come in. Um, and probably uh, besides the obvious Maurice Andre, um, there were a lot of Maurice Andre recordings in those days and I had a lot of them. Uh, I think the one person that really inspired me was um, Tom Stevens. And he was principal trumpet in LA. And what inspired me about him was there was somebody who I aspired to be like. He was principal trumpet in a major orchestra, but he played solo recordings and he was a soloist. And I thought, there it is. Both of these things can function together. Not only cornet trumpet, but orchestral trumpet and soloist. These things can work together. And so, you know, it's always hard. I think I've, I've said this before. It's hard to pick one. So there's a few. Great stuff. Um, now, in my preparation for this interview, I was reading a few articles, and one article that I came across from the uh, Los Angeles Times in 1999, um, you said that you prayed before every concert that you went on and played. Why was it always so important for you that you did this? Again, it goes back to your question about faith, right? Um, how dare I start a day without even prayer? How dare I walk into the most important element of my day doing my job and think so highly of myself. Scripture has reminded me that I need to remember where my strength comes from. I look to the hills to find my strength and my strength comes from the Lord. And so in my inadequacies and feeling perhaps my, you know, just the natural things that we feel as human beings, that we're not always, we're thrust into positions sometimes, that I would very readily say, Lord, I've done what I can do. I've practiced. You've heard me in the basement, Lord. Um, just help me keep, keep me calm. My prayer was generally to keep me calm. I don't believe that God gives high seas, although on occasion he certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, God, if you can't get the high scene in the basement, uh, you better believe in miracles. But, uh, uh, but there were certainly times when God just lifted me, I believe, to play outside of myself and my capabilities. And so that's just being normal. Thank you for your honesty and openness in the answer to that. So you've had one of the most distinguished trumpet playing careers in history uh, from the 36 years with the New York Philharmonic to playing duets on stage with Winter Marsalis to premiering many uh, trumpet concertos that were written for yourself. The list goes on and on. But you've also taken the time to record several solo CDs with the New York Star Band and solo tracks. Why was it also important for you to take time to do this? 
Well, to, to be honest, um, most of those opportunities came at the suggestion of the staff band. Um, they were usually the ones saying, hey, how about making a recording? And I was like, okay. Uh, recordings are an expensive proposition. And me being cheap is not about to go and pay for a vanity CD. Uh, and so, and, and I just love, A, I love brass banding. B, the Army and its music making and its mission is, is important to me. And it especially was then as a practicing salvationist. Um, and so it was, I was honored to be asked to, to be able to, to, to play. Uh, and so that's, that's why, it, that's, that's how it came about. Um, and just one thing sort of led to another, another opportunity. So now looking back to your time with the New York Phil, uh, there are certain orchestral pieces such as Marla Five, Pictures at an Exhibition, an Alpine Symphony, um, the list goes on again, that are really renowned for their iconic and huge trumpet parts. And I would say you've had the chance to perform all of these, if not most, um, during your time with the orchestra. What I'd like to know is, was there one piece in particular that you always looked forward to performing? Well, as a trumpet player, right, we're, we're all... <clears throat> doesn't matter what, what your nature is like. There's a, a certain truth to the idea that trumpet players are kind of jocks, you know, like we're, we're, oh, we're all kind of that way. And even if your nature is to be somewhat refined and shy like me and quiet, there's still that thing to go, let's get in here. Let's make some racket. Uh, so yeah, when you get the big pieces, like the ones you mentioned, uh, yeah, that's a challenge. Like, man, this is this. You know, there's a certain, as I said before, there's a certain fear and trepidation part of this, where you're kind of like, whoa, this is a big piece, and there's the thing is, I can do this. This is going to be a gas, and and you know, so there's this dichotomy that's going on all the time. So yeah, there were those great pieces, um, like Model Five, like Alpine. I loved Alpine. Man, to be able to rip snort some of those concert D's out. That's, I mean, those are fun. Come down two octaves and try to just rat it through the orchestra. I love that stuff. But then, to be honest with you, there are other pieces that were just as beautiful to me. I love the music of Rachmaninoff. Uh, his piano concertos, his symphonic dances, just all uh, his symphonies. Just I loved it because Rachmaninoff knew how to write for brass. He knows how to. He, he you know, there are many many composers who are stretching things and don't always write well, but. Rachmaninoff knew where the meat and potatoes was of everything that he wrote. And I loved playing that kind of sound, that kind of style that he played. The other pieces that I loved, and sometimes they're not the ones, it's kind of hard. I often tell my kids when, we're, when I'm teaching them repertoire, some of the pieces that you're going to find that you love the most are the ones that look the easiest, but they're sometimes the hardest to play. Pieces like the Brahms symphonies or the Schumann Schubert symphonies or Beethoven symphonies. These are some of the hardest things to play because at times you've, you've, got, to, you've got to learn this balance of I'm just a, a uh, instrumental timpani going along with that. At other times I become a lead voice. I become a top, the top as the trombones come up in a Brahms symphony and I go across the top and then come down and we all meld into the horns. You have to know how to do all of that. Your, your ear has to hear that. And while they may not be the most challenging of licks, 
they are often the most musical of licks to find and to, and to produce and, and to make work. So yeah, the big licks, the big pieces, great. You know, that's ear candy. Some of the other stuff was really lovely to play. And on a flip side to that question, is there ever a particular piece that you always dreaded uh, that would come out on the stands or you thought, oh no, not this again? Yeah, that, that, of course. Of course, and especially when you've been, um, I mean, it's true, I was co-principal when I started the Philharmonic, but in essence, I was doing the principal job. I was, if you listen to the recordings of Zubin Mehta, who was the guy who hired me, the boss, um, pretty much every recording that Zubin has, it's me playing principal on it. So while I, I inherited the title of co-principal, in, in honesty, I was doing the principal role. And so... Now, now you've been 20, 25, 30, 35 years in the orchestra. Model 5 comes along, you're going, well, the people that are showing up want me to play this like I was when I was 28. I'm not sure I still got that in me. So, you, so yeah, that does work on you a little bit. Um, uh, where the pieces that, um, it, it depends how you are on a particular day and time. You know, sometimes we all go through these things where my soft playing wasn't quite so good or my tonguing wasn't quite so good. So it depends on the piece, but probably the piece that, um, was the most frightening to me a little bit was Mala three. Um, because I did it in the tradition of Herseth. Most people, when they play Mala three, the post horn, uh, symphony, um, they'll have one person who plays the post horn and another person who plays first trumpet through the symphony. And Herseth never modeled that to me. Herseth modeled to me that he played first trumpet in the orchestra on the first movement, then he left the stage, he went backstage, he played the post horn solo, then he came back on stage and he played the big rousing finish. And I thought, if that's good enough for Herseth, it's good enough for me. And so that's what I did too. Well, that makes for a tough show. That makes for a tough go. And so over the course of the years, as I played that post horn solo, I initially played it on a B flat cornet with a wick mouthpiece. And then I played it after, you know, a few years went by, I, I moved to a C cornet. And then I moved to uh, a, a C trumpet with a flugelhorn type mouthpiece in it. And then a C trumpet with a trumpet mouthpiece with a bell, a, a, a hat, a cloth hat over the bell to try to simulate the flugelhorn uh, sound or the post horn sound. And then finally, by the end, 36 years later, I'm on an E flat trumpet with a uh, cloth over the bell because it just got harder and harder and harder to play this thing. But you still have to do it. And so th those are kind of the stresses that you feel like, can I keep doing this piece? Great. So your sound and style of playing orchestral pieces and orchestral excerpts is perhaps seen by many trumpet players as the go-to approach. And in particular, your 1994 CD, Orchestral Excerpts of Trumpet, I've got my copy here, just showing off. <laughs> um, I would suggest that this CD has informed and influenced a whole generation of trumpet players. And I know for me, it was certainly a very influential CD. So perhaps this next question is a bit um, a personal nerdy question for me. But what was the inspiration behind recording this CD, purely just consisting of trumpet excerpts and spoken commentary with them? Well, to be honest, the, the idea was not mine. It was an idea that um, the people, um, the producers of the CD had. And so this CD exists for horn, trombone, clarinet, piccolo, all the different instruments in the orchestra. It was a, a project that went. Uh, and they asked if I would do this. Um, and so 
it was this, uh, it, it wanted to be, um, the goal was that it was to be educational. Um, and so, and yet I realized that, you know, you can't talk too much on a CD, it's going to be boring. So it's a matter of trying to find the right amount of balance of uh, playing with talking. You also can't get too deep into the weeds uh, in the talking. You can't get too, too, so I would try to, I tried to keep the commentaries very generic so that, you know, someone who wasn't a trumpet player could listen to it and be interested in what was being said as well. Um, I've always had an interest in making sure that the program is good. Uh, you, you want to make sure that the little old lady in the third row is going to have a good time listening to the program. It can't just be for the trumpet players. Um, and so that was really the point of the program, uh, the, the point of the CD. Fantastic. So it's clear that your time with the New York Philharmonic has left a real lasting legacy. And perhaps this is highlighted by the release of the Philip Smith collection in 2015, a three CD anthology of some of the uh, some of your most oh, great CD. <laughs> um, so, and it includes some of your most iconic live performances uh, in the orchestra, and as a soloist, um, a real incredible CD. If anyone listening hasn't heard it, it's uh, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, perhaps a challenging question: This, but have you got a most uh, a particularly memorable performance or highlight from your whole time as a performer? That's a hard one. There were so many. I, I used to say, I often said, um, you know, join the Philharmonic and see the world. I, I joined the Philharmonic. I, I've been, God has blessed me to hold this position uh, that I had for 36 years in the Philharmonic. I got to see the entire world, places that you'd never think you'd go. North Korea, China, around the Asian Rim. Uh, first time that we went with Zubin Mehta, we went to India because that was his home. Saw everything from the wealth of Bombay to the poorest things of Calcutta. Uh, had, a, had a personal um, private visit to the Taj Mahal at, at, by moonlight. Uh, it was just fantastic to, for the Philharmonic members just to be in that place. So there's so many experiences like that going to the great european festivals it's the same with the music there's so many things that i can think of from great moments of playing um playing in royal albert hall both with chicago symphony and with the philharmonic and just being in that space um also playing encores with the brass quintet at the end uh, uh kurt mazor used to like to feature the brass quintet so at the end he'd, he'd before that he came back for his last bow, he'd give us a little wink and we would stand up and do a little Dixieland number. And uh, so little things from there, from just that, that little thing is a highlight. It could be a big Marlowe Symphony, it could be That's a Plenty from, you know, a little Dixieland number. Uh, it's hard for me to pick those things out. It just is. I've been blessed and I just thank the Lord for the blessing. Great. And as a teacher now, hopefully we have uh, lots of aspiring uh, trumpet players listening. As a teacher now, what would you say one of the most important things to grasp when you're learning the trumpet? Sing. You've got to sing. Um, that, that truly is the thing that I'm always talking about. We can talk about tonguing. We can talk about different elements of how to 
you know, flexibility, usage of air. We can talk about all these things and it's all great and it all has its place. But at the end of the day, at whatever level you're at as a player, even if you're playing your first hymn tune solo, the idea is to sing the music. You don't want to play da, 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 da. This doesn't mean anything. You want to know what those words are and you want to use those words as you would sing it. Jesus loves me, this I know. Those words give you direction. Those words give you articulation. Dido, as opposed to dido, dido. You know? So singing, you know, whatever that is. Uh, scripture tells us, I've got up here the sign back here, it says, sing unto the Lord a new song. Another one of my favorite verses is sing and make music unto the Lord. Um, give thanks to, uh, to God through Jesus Christ. And, and it's just, it's all about singing a new song. Sing, 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 sing. Wise advice. Now coming back into a full circle uh, for the more serious questions that I've got for you in this interview. Have you got a favorite or a couple of favorite Salvation Army brass band pieces? And if so, why? Yeah, well, here in our country over the last numbers of months, and especially the last numbers of weeks, we've been in a very surreal time. I'm seeing things that I never thought I would see in our country. Um, and I'm troubled. I'm greatly troubled by that. And yet it's not unusual. We go through these things in human history. Um, but I think because of that, and as I've thought about the times and I've thought about pieces and I've thought about the pieces that I've done even with the brass band uh, at the University of Georgia, we started a brass band there. I use a lot of Silverstein literature because that's the literature I know. Um, I've had to learn more outside literature um, and that's okay, that's good for me. Um, but one of the pieces that we've played uh, in the brass band at school is Eric Ball's Triumph for Peace. And I just love that piece. I love listening to right off the start, you hear the, the turbulence of the time. And you hear this turbulence, all that's going on, and it settles down and it gets into the first, the, uh, the first verse, which is a beautiful verse. Peace surely based upon thy will and built in righteousness, the power alone, thy power alone can break the fetters that enchain the sorely stricken soul of life and make it live again. That first cornet solo in that is just, it's just that turmoil that ceases for a moment and that first verse comes through. And then Eric doesn't really give us a second verse, but he takes us through a kind of a minor section where it talks about the mistrust and fear that we read in the second verse of that thing. And then the end, I love this ending. And, and I, this is where I wish I was a soprano cornet or solo horn player. Peace, and it's peace. Peace in our time, oh Lord. And off it goes. And the, the, this, the, the, the harmony, Eric's tune is luscious. And when we get to come now and dwell, um, come now and dwell within the hearts of men everywhere. That whole harmonic progression on those words coming up through there is just wonderful. 
And, and so that's, that's a piece that really has jumped out at me. And if I can, one other one, um, and it was, we did, a, we did a celebration of Wilfred Heaton a couple of semesters ago on his 100th anniversary. We did it, we celebrated the 100th birthday with music of Heaton and Bernstein who celebrated together. Bernstein didn't write much for brass band, so we had a lot more Heaton on the program than Bernstein. Uh, but uh, we did as just as I am. And I also incorporated it because um, Billy Graham had just passed away. And so it was a way that even in a public university, I could refer to the passing of a great man, Billy Graham, by the use of this tune that he closed every one of his crusades with. But this, uh, just as I am, is just a wonderful uh, solo, a wonderful uh, selection. And uh, the way that Heaton treats it is just, is just absolutely uh, wonderful. Um, in the songbook, we've only got four of the seven verses that Charlotte Elliott uh, actually wrote. Um, and the, actually, for the, for the last verse, the one that I love the most is one that's not in the songbook, uh, I don't believe. And it's, it's called, it, the words are, just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. And again, when you put those words in on that final, that final um, uh, tune in the, in the arrangement, it's just powerful. Um, and yet I think Heaton struggled in some ways. I don't wanna to read too much into what he did, but he never really finishes the tune. And, that off, and I think that's, uh, I don't know that it was personal. I'm not trying to suggest it was, but it is something I think that we experience that faith for, for all of us can be a hard thing. And sometimes it's hard for us to say, I come, I come and have that final resolution of coming. So I think that's been important to me, those two songs, especially in the, the days that we're in right now. Thank you for those words. So I've now had two questions sent in from Philip Cobb, the principal trumpet of the London Symphony Orchestra. Um, his first question is, do you have a particular recording or solo album that you're particularly proud of? Well, first of all, nice to hear you, Philip. I owe you an email. Thank you for your email to me. It meant a lot to me and I will get back to you. I'm hoping to have Philip, if all is well, and David Childs as guests uh, next spring uh, with our University of Georgia Brass Band. Um, hopefully we're back in business by then. Um, a, re a recording that I'm most proud of? Was that the question? Yeah. And I don't know, I'm not sure if he means a solo recording or a brass band recording or anything. I, um, and, and I'm gonna go in a different direction. I'm gonna go, the one that really has just quickly jumped out of my mind is Quiet City that I did um, with, with Lenny Bernstein. Um, and and that, was, that was a very special thing. The, 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 the front side of that is Copeland Third, which is one of my fun pieces and rock'em sock'em high C's that Copeland throws around besides the fanfare for the common man in, in the right key. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just, a, it's just a, a fun thing. And then when we finished all of that recording session stuff, Lenny says, okay, we're gonna do Quiet City. And I'm like, oh, good idea. <laughs> and I think we went two and a half times through Quiet City, and that's what's on the recording. 
but it's just such a wonderful piece. And again, I love that. And, and you have to, your, your heart has to, you've got to, you've got to have a movie. A movie has to be going. You have got to put yourself in Central Park. You got to see the city. You got to see the lights and you got to feel lonely. And what comes out is, is there. That's a wonderful piece. And that recording that we did, picture of Lenny and Copeland on the front cover, uh, just before Copeland passed away. Excellent. And Phil's second question really leads very nicely into our uh, slightly quirkier quickfire uh, section that we have. And his question is, what's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you on stage with the New York Phil? <laughs> we all have those. And he knows that. Uh, that's the thing. With, there are times when we're sitting back there having the giggles. And, uh, and, and I'm sure the audience is wondering what's going on. But on this particular one that I'm going to think about, uh, which, by the way, let me get back to his first question. The other favorite recording I have is another new one called Trilogy. And that's another one that's a three CD set. So uh, if you're looking for that, check out my website as well, principaltrumpet.com. I sign all of my CDs that I sell. Um, but anyway, back to your question. We would do an Alpine Symphony. And we were doing it with Kristen Thielemann, who wasn't the nicest guy in the world. He was very German and very kind of aggressive, just kind of a, I didn't really like him, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but we're doing Alpine Symphony and uh, uh, bass trombone player happened to move his chair and we didn't have a real organ in the, in the hall. We had an electronic organ. He moved his chair and he hit the big plug to the electronic organ and there was this bang and the organ went kablooey. There was, that was it. And we're, we haven't come up to the big organ part. So the, the, the stage managers are they're right there quarreling around us and trying to fix this thing and change fuses and get the plug in. And we're still trying to play Alpine Symphony. We're having laughing and laughing and laughing. Then the coup d'etat was when all could, was lost. Nothing could be done. They quickly ran over to the side, rolled up a piano, and the organist was playing uh, on what it just sounded like a honky-tonk piano. I was trying to play the organ part, this glorious organ parts in Alpine Symphony on what sounded like a honky-tonk piano. And we were just rolling on the aisles about you know, things like that. So there's all kinds of those kind of funny things. Fantastic. So that brings us on to the final couple of minutes of questions with you. And then one that's listened to this podcast before will know that I like to ask some really quirky quickfire questions that I guarantee no one will have ever thought to ask you in any interview plus a few more serious ones. So let's start off with those. New York's full of iconic landmarks. Have you got a favorite? Uh, Empire State Building. Have you got a favorite biblical character? Paul. If you're cooking, what's your signature dish? <laughs> you have to know that I'm not a cook, so it's baked beans on toast <laughs> when my wife goes away. <laughs> Um, have you got a favorite conductor that you've worked with? Oh, I've got oodles of them. I would have to say probably my favorite would be Zubin Mater. Now, here's a chance to offend a whole group of people. What's your least favorite instrument in the orchestra? <laughs> um, <laughs> probably the bass trumpet. <laughs> Very good answer to that. Um, have you got a favorite trumpet concerto? Yes, 
um, avoiding the obvious. I'm going to go with Joseph Turin's first trumpet concerto. It's based on the Book of Revelation, and it's a wonderful piece. It doesn't get played. Uh, it needs to be played, and it is a fun piece to play. It's through composed. Um, it's not in movements. It's just it's a great piece. I love it. I've recorded it so people can hear it and play it. But yeah, I mean, obviously Haydn is cool, but I mean, there's a million Haydn's. You know, who cares? Uh, Tomasi is fun. The Shanes is cool. Uh, not, you know, you can find them, listen to them all here. But in fact, you can hear Joseph Turin's concerto there too. Um, but I, yeah, his concerto I think is great. If you could have dinner with one person from history, what starter would you order? <laughs> uh, well, probably because my wife doesn't like fish, my first start, my starter would probably be clam chowder. <laughs> and uh, of course, um, what beverage on the side? Oh well, I'm I'm really not a super beverage person. I'm a, I'm a I'm a water and ice, you know, water with lemon kind of guy. And who would that one person from history be? Oh dear. Um, that's a good one. I think I'd love to sit with John, the apostle. Um, the closeness that he had with Christ all the way through, you know, it, obviously through uh, the crucifixion and resurrection, seeing Christ as a young man, uh, taking care of uh, the Lord's mom in those passing years. What stories did she have to tell? Culminating with him sitting on the island of Pat Patmos and having this vision that is the book of Revelation. Man, what a, what a find that, that, that meal will go way too fast. And just a couple more questions. Have you got a least favorite mute? <laughs> um, yeah, practice mute. <laughs> what about a favorite astronaut? Oh, a favorite astronaut. Well, man. Um, John Glenn. If you were a fish, would you rather live in the ocean, a lake, or a river? I'm an ocean guy. And finally, let's let's take this metaphorical fish that we've just conjured. Uh, if it were to be caught by a fisherman, would you rather it end up tempura battered, pan fried, or sushi? Pan fried. Excellent. So that brings me to the end of our quick five <laughs> our interview. So we'll be speaking to you a little bit later. And we, I see we've had some uh, comments and questions on the Facebook live stream that we'll ask you in a little bit. And of course, we'll put you to the test in Band Mastermind. Oh, so that's speak to you For now, and we'll see you in a few minutes. All right, thank you. Now it gives me the great pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Nodes, who's going to be joining us and talking about his piece, Prelude on Lavenham. So Jeffrey, it's fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for your time. Matthew, hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. I think uh, apart from the miserable weather, not too bad. <laughs> Good. So as I said, you're going to be speaking to us a bit about your piece, uh, Prelude on Lapham. And Yeah, Matthew, can I just say one thing before we start? Of when course. I was a lad um, playing solo cornet in Portsmouth Citadel, my idol was Philip's dad. 
And my best record, I played it three times a week. And Matthew, I have it here. It was an LP called Star Spangled Band Music. Okay, it's the New York Star Band, a male chorus, Great Britain tour 1960. And on it, staff bandsman Derek Smith is playing Songs in the Heart. And I listened to that until the record wore out. So that's quite a good link with, with Phil. Excellent stuff. We love a bit of a link continuity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so back to your, your music. Thank you for the music as well. Uh, first of all, this piece, The Prelude on Magnum, has been hugely popular mm. with Saudi bands uh, over the last few years in the UK and certainly around the world as well. When did you first start to notice the popularity that this piece had attained? I think perhaps, Matthew, it was when um, Steve Cobb started playing it with the ISB, which was shortly after its first performance at Lavenham back in 2014. And I started having emails from all sorts of people saying they'd acquired the music, which, you know, it goes around, which is, which is great. People were using it. Um, and then the ISB uh, played it on the tour of Australia. And I had some wonderful emails from people in Australia saying how much it had moved them. And Steve very kindly passed on emails that he'd received about people who'd been moved by the music and the words. Um, so I think that was it really. And then generally just over the years, more and more performances seem to come on YouTube of bands inside the army and contesting bands and so on, which is a bit ironic, Matthew, because I first, I only composed it for one performance, which was for the first performance in Lavenham Parish Church. And I thought I'd be grateful just to hear it once. And I did, but uh, yeah, so I suppose that's really when Steve first took it over the ISB and it began to be wider known. Yeah. Fantastic. And thank goodness it's been picked up and uh, we, we've had well. a job. Um, so as you alluded to, spiritually, this piece has impacted many people. Did the process of writing the music for you have any impact on your faith? I think it did through Nick's amazing words. You know, um, it talks about everybody having questions, which we all do, especially as Phil was saying in these very troubled times. Um, and I think Nick's words, especially in the last verse, you know, Lord, there are times when the questions run fast. Times when I fear that my faith may not last. Help me, support me, Lord. Help me get through. And then the last line, which is just so beautiful, lead me through darkness till light shines anew. And I think that's good for all of us, isn't it? And sometimes we doubt our faith and sometimes there are questions that are unanswerable. But as Phil was saying, faith is the bedrock and it carries us through. So I believe this was your first Salvation Army published piece. Was this your first time writing for Brass Band, though? Absolutely not. When I was a lad, I, I went to Tilney Hall for a, a number of years and thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, who wouldn't? Under the directorship of Les Condon. Um, I remember Les was such an inspiring leader and inspiring teacher. And he encouraged some of us to write pieces and take them to Tilney Hall. And he played them through with the A band. Some of them were more interesting than others and you know people trying scoring and so on I think in my first year I read a cornet duet can't remember what it was called but I played it um one of the solo parts uh the second year when I was 17 I read a festival march called Portsmouth Citadel which had every sea shanty Matthew you can imagine in it started with the basses going which made my father's eyebrow go up because you know my dad was bandmaster of Portsmouth for 45 years and he played it with Portsmouth Band as well. And I think I wrote a meditation in, in the next year. 
And then um, in 1975, for the finals of my music degree, I wrote a piece called Prelude on Quem Pastores, um, which I sent to the editorial board at the time. And they sent a lovely letter back saying, we, we very much like this piece and the scoring, but it's a little too Anglican for our use. So things have changed a bit, haven't they, Matthew, in the years? Absolutely. So um, composers are often influenced by other composers when they're writing. Um, are there any composers or compositions that influence this piece, The Prelude on Lovely? Yeah, I was going to say Snap, listening to Phil. Eric Ball and Wilfred Eaton. Um, I was really privileged, Matthew, in 2005 to be asked to conduct at a wonderful concert, which is the 125th celebration of Portsmouth Citadel Band, because I've been bandmaster in the past. And um, that was in a beautiful church in Portsmouth. And they asked me what I wanted to conduct. And I said, well, only one choice, just as I am. And there were, uh, oh, almost 100 previous bandsmen who'd, came, who'd come for that concert. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. That music is, it says more in four and a half minutes than other pieces say in 18 minutes, you know? And of course, the other great iconic figure, of course, is Eric Ball. Um, I remember as a deputy bandmaster at Portsmouth, a very young deputy being privileged to drive Eric back to his home from Portsmouth after a band weekend where Eric was the guest. And it was the most extraordinary hour of my life. Eric was talking about his faith, his extraordinary music and his scoring. And it was, that journey is seared on my brain, especially when he said, Jeffrey, never forget when you're conducting build from the bases upwards. And that was Eric. So yeah, Eric Ball, Wilfred Eaton, glorious, glorious music. Brilliant. Someone had recorded that conversation. It had made a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly um, good. Mm. Uh, so the words, as you alluded to earlier, were written by the Reverend Nick Fawcett. Uh, where did you first encounter these words? Uh, I was asked to write a new hymn tune by my publisher, Kevin Mayhew. That was in 2004. Um, and they were about to publish a new hymn book, which is called uh, Hymns Old and New. And I have a copy in the bookshop just above me. Um, so basically, they just arrived in the post. And uh, I, I, I set the music and, uh, and sent it back and they published it in the book. Um, and the nice thing was that when I remember being up at Lavenham, uh, because we visited quite a lot, um, and my wife and I have been up because we still have friends in Lavenham, and I mentioned this to them, and the army in Lavenham took up the song, and also the church in Lavenham took up the song, which was really nice. So really, that was the first time I'd seen the words, yeah. So what was the uh, inspiration behind writing that actual tune? Was there any thoughts that came into your head about that, the, how the tune should sound and associating it with those words? Yes, I was asked to write the arrangement by um, a wonderful man at Lavenham Corps called Robert Holmes, one of the stalwarts of Lavenham Salvation Army, a wonderful, wonderful group of Salvationists up there in the tiny village. And this was for their 130th anniversary in 2014. And they were to have a concert in Lavenham Parish Church, played by Kettering Citadel Band. I don't know if you know the area, but East Anglia is full of these amazing, amazing churches built on the wool trade in the medieval era. They're enormous. They're like cathedrals. Um, 
And so I wrote the, I was delighted to write the hymn tune arrangement. I called it a prelude. It sounds a bit posher, you know. Um, and Margaret and I went up for the first performance. It was midsummer, June, 2014. And we listened to the first performance of Lavenham in Lavenham Parish Church, which was, uh, which was very special, very special indeed. Fantastic. I do, I do know East Anglia very well. I was born and raised in Norwich. So oh, wow. very good. Picture what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so in reading the score notes, so another one of your uh, published pieces that you mentioned earlier, actually, the Prelude on Quem Pastores, you mentioned that that piece was written with the acoustics of Portsmouth Cathedral in mind, where the piece was to have its premiere. When writing the Prelude on Lavenham, how much did that consideration of acoustics come into mind for that inaugural performance? Very, very much so. Um, I was privileged to go to a school that had links with Portsmouth Cathedral, and we did lots of concerts in Portsmouth Cathedral, and that acoustic sound world was part of my childhood, you know? Um, and I think there's nothing better than a good brass band playing in a cathedral or a resonant church. Of course, you've got to choose your repertoire, haven't you? You know, But if you play suitable music and it's right, there, there is nothing, nothing like it. Um, and so, yes, when I, when I was asked to write Lavenham uh, for Lavenham Parish Church, I had that wonderful wide acoustic in mind. And, you know, the, the most wonderful thing was we drove up on that first performance in June 2014. We went early uh, in the afternoon, went up to the church and met friends from Lavenham, including Maureen Wilding, who uh, is the widow of Derek Wilding, to whom the piece is dedicated. He was a bandmaster at Lavenham. And as we walked up the church into Lavenham Parish Church, I heard the music of Lavenham being played from inside by Kettering Band. And that's a moment I won't forget. That was, that was very moving. But yes, the acoustic really does matter in, in Quempa stories, um, as much as Lavenham, really, yes. And so when you were writing the original tune, I think you said around 2004, was it ever in your head that you would do an arrangement or the prelude on the piece, or was that the, an inspiration that came? No. Like, no, absolutely not. That was precisely because Rob rang and said, look, do you fancy writing this? And I really hadn't written anything for Brass Band since 1975. So I thought, right, let's get the brain working, see if I can remember how to score for Brass Band. And uh, what was so lovely, um, Matthew, was that that set the ball in motion. And I'm sure you've heard that the story that Steve Cobb tells that... Um, after that first performance in Lavenham Parish Church, the music sort of migrated, which it does, you know, and it ended up with the Anglia Fellowship Band. Um, Ray Todd is the conductor. And Steve went down to a rehearsal of the Anglia Fellowship Band to, to look at some of the new tunes for the new army tune book. And at the end of the rehearsal, Ray said to Steve, we've got five minutes to spare. Would you like to run this piece through? It's in manuscript. <clears throat> and Steve looked at it and said, is this the Geoffrey Nobes I knew 40 years ago at Tilney Hall? And he played it through and emailed me and said, could we use it with the ISB? And I said, oh, I, th I think you probably could, yes. Um, and so that's where it all came from. And I've been writing other stuff now and um, it's, it's all come from that one moment, which was really lovely. I said to Steve, it's a coincidence. He said, no, 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 that's not a coincidence. He said it was meant to happen, so. Great stuff. And my final question for you, Jeff, before we listen to your piece and just take a moment to reflect and, and listen to the beauty of the music and, and respond to those words in our hearts. It's quite a personal question, but is there a particular performance or recording of the piece that's been special to you? Yeah, good question, Matthew. I think obviously the, the, um, the first one, 
was, was really magical with the sunlight coming through the windows of Lavenham Church and all our friends from Lavenham there. Um, it was very special. Um, there's another lovely performance too. Margaret and I went down to the lighthouse at Poole to the uh, Territorial Youth Band and Choir. Wonderful concert they give in, in, in February. Steve asked us down and he played Lavenham with the band and that was very special. Um, and of course, Steve's recording with the ISB is just iconic with the wonderful video and pictures they put to it. So yes, those three, I think, are, are the ones that really, really stand out. Brilliant. And we're now going to listen to that recording uh, from the ISB and the video of that now. And we invite you, the, the listeners, just to take a few moments to reflect to the words, uh, really poignant words for the situation we find ourselves in today. And I dare say that we'll find ourselves in the future. Let's have a listen to that.
and I believe uh, we'll have a few words now uh, in prayer from Jeff. I thought it'd be really lovely um, to have some words from Nick Fawcett, who wrote the words to London. And so here they are. So many are worried, Lord. Calm their fears. So many are hurting. Tend their wounds. So many are grieving. Comfort them. So many are lonely. Assure them of your presence. So many are vulnerable. Protect them. So many are in need, Lord. Reach out to them in love, in tenderness and mercy and see them safely through. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, always a challenge now to change the atmosphere and uh, break that atmosphere that we created there. So thank you for that music. Um, now we've had a few questions uh, tweeted or not tweeted, Facebooked in on our live stream. So we're going to do our best to uh, answer some of those now. So Phil, we've got a few questions for you here. And your first one comes from Ryan Northwood. What is your favourite concert to play in anywhere around the world and why? Um, the music for Ryan in, in Vienna, it's just such a beautiful place. Um, just, it, it just makes you feel like you're in a very intimate, beautiful hall. And, and, I, and I, I just, I loved playing there. Excellent stuff. Uh, the second question for you, Phil, is uh, from Smith, and he says, which Salvation Army solo that you've played blesses you as you play the piece? Well, there are many. Um, I'm going to pick one that I had written for me, and that's Steve Buller's arrangement of Blessed Assurance, um, because I just like the reflective nature of that. And I love when the testimony comes in um, for the for the trumpet and the key goes up and you end up on high cue. Um, it's just, this is my story, blessed, you know. It's just, yeah, that, that I get chills playing that one. And the final question we've had sent in is from Jacob Smith. I asked you who your favorite uh, Salvation Army composer, or, or Peace certainly was. Now, a bit of a broader question here, but who would you say is your favourite composer, and why? Oh dear. Um, all right, I'm I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm not going to go orchestral because that was my life. I'm gonna, I'm going to go brass band. Um. And uh, I would say that Les Condon is probably my favorite composer just because he is a storyteller. And uh, some of his music is, is just fabulous storytellers. I particularly love East of Glory. Um, and I think that's a very powerful tune. So he's one of my favorites. And consequently then I think I kind of lean that way even in the orchestral side of things. I think one of my favorite, if I had to pick an orchestral composer favorite, it might be Respighi because of this, the stories that are behind those pieces, the trilogy. Yeah. 
And uh, Jeff, I'd like to ask you the same question as well. Yeah. Got a favourite composer, and why would that be? Um, <clears throat> difficult. I love the English edition of Vaughan Williams. I love Elgar. Um, I love Mahler. Absolutely love Mahler. I mean, one of the most amazing concerts I ever heard was in the Albert Hall, 1987. Leonard Bernstein conducting the Vienna Phil in Mahler Five, and the atmosphere was electric. Absolutely. I mean, Phil will know the Adagietto so well. And Bernstein was lost in it. And the Vienna Philharmonic played, well, it inspired doesn't even begin to come to it. So, um, yeah, Mahler I love. I love so many composers, but I, I really do love the, the English tradition, which may be in some of the things I write, you know, just echoes of that. Great. And uh, my final question from the audience uh, is once again for Jeff. And that's from Andy Cracknell. And it's, is it true that the Royal uh, Marines used the prelude on Lavenham? Sorry, could you say that again? Are you just breaking up there? Sorry. Uh, is it true that the Royal Marines used your prelude on Lavenham? Yes, they did, which I was, I was really delighted about. They did a tour of Scandinavia and they live streamed Lavenham. I actually arranged it for Windband, which was, which was great. Um, the RAF Central Band have played it. I've been doing some work recently with the RAF Central Band. And that's been really, really splendid. It's sort of um, widened my palette writing for bassoons and uh, all sorts of other wonderful things. So, um, yeah. So, yes, that's true. Great stuff. Thank you for your time. So this now brings us to our final segment of the podcast. And it's a segment that we like to call Band Mastermind. So, Phil, we'd like to put you to the test on your band and music trivia. So those that haven't listened to the podcast before, um, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many of these questions correctly as you can. Before okay. we start, though, yeah, sorry. Just, just, just real quick, I just want to say before I get lost in this tremendous uh, hmm. next episode, how much I loved listening to that prelude and to hear Jeffrey talk about it. Beautiful composition, Jeffrey. Thanks so much for that. Pulling that out with the uh, UGA British Brass Band. Thanks, Phil. That's very, very good of you. Thank you very much. So, Band Mastermind, I believe we've got a scoreboard, our leaderboard that's going to pop up now. Phil, where would you like to come on this leaderboard here? <laughs> Above Philip Cobb. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fighting talk there. Well, let's put you to the test. So you'll have, as I said, one minute and 30 to answer as many questions correctly as you can. Philip Smith, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? No, but go ahead. <laughs> Your time starts now. True or false, the ISB in 1896 contained four clarinets. True. Incorrect, I'm afraid. It was only three. Which corps had a saxophone sextet of which a notable member was Bramwell Coles? Region Hall. Uh, Chalk Farm, not, not far off at all. Which decade did Boozy and Hawks and SPNS announce that they would no longer be making high pitch brass instruments? 1965. Uh, you're correct with the 60s there. I'll give you that one. The Salvation Army own brand instruments were manufactured in which UK city? London. 
Uh, close, but we'll move on. Who wrote the March Minneapolis Four? Oh, Emil Soderstrom. Correct. Which uh, Paul Sharman piece was published first? Was it Purpose or Psalm of Thanks? Purpose. So close. It's a 50-50 chance, but not quite. Uh, what is the only brass instrument in the Salvation Army band that reads bass clay? Oh, uh, bass drumon. Correct. Before it became the General Series, what was this publication known as? Second Series? Uh, close, unfortunately not. What year did publications for the Festival Series stop? Uh, 79. Uh, not quite, I'm afraid. And the final question we'll have time for... I'll say that we started the question because uh, I should have done before the time and started. And that last question is, Shine as a Light, Odyssey and Hymn for Diana are all published in which collection? Oh, um, the, uh, uh, oh, what do we call it? In New York. Um, God, flipping heck. Uh, <laughs> oh, geez, I can see it. Tri uh, triumphonic something. The Triumphonic Collection. I'll give you that one. Absolutely. So that gives you uh, a total of one, two, three, four points, which is not a bad score considering the difficulty of some of these questions. So if I just whiz through quickly the ones you didn't quite get, uh, the core that has a saxophone or had a saxophone sextet, of which a notable member was Bramwell Coles, was Chalk Farm. Uh, the Salvation Army own brand instruments were manufactured in St Albans. Just outside London. Uh, it was Psalm of Thanks that was published out of Paul's pieces first. And before it became the general series, it was known as the ordinary series. Oh. Um, and festival uh, series publications stopped in 2005. Yeah. So there Wait. you go. Uh, you, you beat the other film. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so we'll get your name on that leaderboard there. Thank you ever so much once again, Phil and Jeff, for your time on this podcast. It's been really, really great to speak to you and hear from you both. Thank so I believe you. Real pleasure. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Jeffrey. And you, Philip. Very nice to meet you. Yep. Thank you, Matthew. It was fun. Thank you. I believe that all uh, only leaves us to say thank you, good night, and God bless. Bye.